if you have like five people that you have to train, essentially you're just the bottleneck for all of them and you're training all of them. And then it's across multiple disciplines and you're trying to context switch between marketing and development and product and sales and customer success. And without having someone that you can delegate training to and delegate some management to, it becomes a much harder hurdle to jump over to get to the next step. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today I have Josh Rowe from Refer Rock. Welcome to the show. Josh. Thanks for having me. So the first question I like to ask every guest is, what problem does your SaaS product solve? So yeah, that's one of those ones when you ask a founder, it's like they have a thousand iterations in their head. But the easiest way for me to describe it to most people is uh, we uh, we run referral programs. So we help businesses uh, run word of mouth referral programs, like how Everyone knows the Dropbox, the Uber, those types of referral programs that are built into those apps. Um, but basically, we have a platform that enables businesses to be able to run those types of programs without having to code them all, worry about incentives, and they can do more fancy gifting like gift cards and uh, swag or all kinds of other things that they feel like that their brand advocates would would value. Nice. And, and do you guys specialize in, in vertical or, or like, is there a vertical that you guys are bigger in? Uh, there's probably some niches we're stronger in. I would say like our biggest strength is with, <laughs> it's going to sound lame, but it's sort of more of a, more about any business because, and, and only because most people will define themselves as like a D to C or e-commerce or these types of, or a SaaS business. We're, we're pretty horizontal across all of those. But the area that we're strongest in that I think most of our competitors aren't uh, is is with CRM integrations and things like that. So where you could have a B2B type of business that has sales teams and whatnot and has a CRM. So they need the integrations to credit the right referrals to the right people that referred. Uh, or also you have a e-commerce company that might have you know, other other types of service offerings, other things integrated with CRMs that aren't just Shopify and things like that. So um, largely our space is horizontal. So, Yeah, horizontal, but you're like trying to give those B2B companies some of the tools that they need so that they, they can use your product more and they can integrate SaaS. And how, how big are you guys right now? Uh, we're about 20 people. Nice. And you guys been in business for about three years, right? Uh, longer than that. So I believe if I look back, um, we had our first dollar of revenue in 2015. So uh, been around for a while, but since it was bootstrapped and uh, and just I'm the, I'm a single founder, we're not you know funded all of those types of things. It's a lot of it was like nights and weekends and slowly ramping up to working you know, a few hours a week to half time to full time over the course as revenue came in to be able to support myself and adding other people. Nice. So let's talk more about that because that's the whole theme of this show, the origin story. So like what you were doing back then, it looks like you start 
kind of like as a side hustle. Walk me through like what you used to do and, and how did you come up with the idea and, and how was those early days? Sure. So the early days uh, at that, well, when I, at the time of starting Referral Rock, I had a previous SaaS business um, that was in the, I would say it's more in the consumer space. So it was called Ubernote. It was a notes platform. It was the whole idea of, you know, uh, personal productivity and notes, sort of like you see Notion today. That was our vision then. But we started that one in 2005. <laughs> so this was a, a good long period uh, ago and mobile apps weren't even a thing yet. So it was like, so it was very early in SaaS and consumers essentially didn't want to pay for apps at that point in time. So, you know, we went through that for a, a number of years. And then in the uh, probably around 2012 timeframe is when I decided to shut that one down. Uh, it went through other iterations. We did a accelerator and all kinds of other stuff. But the biggest takeaways for me there were learning how to do marketing because we did some SEO at that point in time. And I understood and learned how to how to market and do the the power of SEO as a distribution channel. Uh, and the other one was I wanted to sell to businesses because consumers didn't want to pay. <laughs> so those are my two, uh, you know, seven year long takeaways from my first SaaS business. And uh, so in that period before starting Referral Rock, I was doing some software consulting for other companies and just doing other odds and ends. And then at that point in time, that's actually when I uh, was married, started having kids and things like that. So it was actually a good time in the early, early days of, of having young children. Um, and so I always wanted to get back into SaaS basically with those two things like, Hey, how could I use SEO as a distribution channel? In addition to how can I, um, sell, do, do a SaaS that is selling to businesses instead. And, and I was sitting in a car dealership and I was watching a salesperson, uh, sit at their desk and a customer walks in and says, Oh, hey, uh, so and so referred me to you to, you know, help me help me buy a, a Honda Accord. And the salesperson kind of had this like blank look in their face, had no idea what the, who the person was, what they were talking about. Uh, and I'm just sitting there getting coffee because I was like getting some car service done. And I saw this flash in the in the salesperson's eyes. All of a sudden, he was like, "Oh!" He just snapped into sales mode. He was like, "Oh yeah, oh Karen, yes, uh, yeah, we, yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to show you this." And oh yeah, you know so and so. Yeah, sure. Hey, hey, we'll get to it. And I was kind of like looking. At it, I was like, I don't think he really even knew what that what was going on. And he just you know was like, "Okay, sales sales uh, sales mode on." And it got. I, I was sitting there and I had my computer and I'm like, "Well." How do how does a referral program work for a car dealership? Uh, and then how does it work for like a yoga studio? How does it work for all of these other businesses that are not pure online, pure e-commerce, that type of thing? So I did a quick Google search, tried to look for you know competitors or who was doing this, and and I found all the players that were doing e-commerce and all these other things. I was like, oh, but no one's doing it for these you know service type businesses. So that was the impetus to even get started. And even as we talked about at the top of the show about who we specialize in, it, it sort of has has gave us strong differentiation early on and a strong kind of a thesis and direction for how we wanted to build the product. Nice. So, so let me kind of like say with my own words to see if I understood. Uh, you build a B2C SaaS and you realize that's super hard to scale. Uh, now you're like, I, I want to do a B2B 
what I'm going to do. Like, you didn't know exactly what to do yet. So, like, just going around with your life, you realize that the business have this need to, like, track referrals and there was anything there. So, let's, I feel like that B2B versus B2C is such a big thing. Like, uh, at my own consulting firm, we actually build SaaS products, but we have one rule. We don't build B2C products because they're very, very hard to be successful. Uh, and we actually broke that rule when we work with public companies. Like we, we build a B2C SaaS for ADP because they have all this money. But if you don't have a lot of money, it's very hard to build a B2C product. So I would like to go a little bit deeper in there because I feel like that's something that you learn that we can teach for other founders that are listening to this show. Like, did you raise money? Because you say your new product now is bootstrap. Did you feel like like... Because in my opinion, and I want to hear your opinion, like it's with a B2B product, you can bootstrap very easily. We only need like 100 customers and you're profitable. And in the B2C space, you need thousands and thousands of customers. Five bucks, it's too much money for people. But like, I wanted to hear your side, like how, what's your, your view and, and how was your experience B2B versus B2C? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely... Uh my opinion <laughs> to get a business off the ground was definitely, I, I agree with you on the, on the B2B just because there are so many other, so many ways. One, like you mentioned, you only need potentially a hundred customers. Um, and, and you can tie money directly to value there. And I think that's the biggest thing, right? Where when we did productivity software, yes, the market seems bigger, like, Oh, millions and millions of people could use this, right? But it's, you have to sift through a lot of that. And and even from a scaling perspective, you have to build infrastructure support, millions of users or hundreds of thousands of users. No one's really willing to try something because the value proposition is so kind of low and harder to describe. Um, now, obviously, like on a e-commerce front and some other things for consumers, that's sort of easier. It's a, a, different, a different play there. Um, so, there's definitely like a lot to be gained from the B2C. I think also a lot of people default to B2C first because a lot of people are consumers first. And then when they when they talk to their friends, uh, there's other factors when they start a business. They want their friends to think it's cool. They want their parents and family to think it's cool. Like if you, you know, come home and, and tell your spouse that's like, hey, I'm going to build this really weird software that only helps these specific types of banks, they're going to be like, okay, I don't know what that is. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And that doesn't sound cool. I don't want to talk, tell, tell my friends about that you're, hey, my spouse is building this, this really weird business. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of like layering factors that people get used to and get caught into, uh, you know, when they hear of entrepreneurs, mostly they they hear about, you know, uh, Elon Musk and, and, uh, you know, they basically, most people know entrepreneurs from a fame perspective, from a B2C perspective. They don't, I think a lot outside of maybe people like you and me, most people don't know who Mark Benioff is, right. Or like Dharmesh Shaw or all these like B2B legends that are building these things, but, but they're not really in the public eye. Um, so I think that's also a way that makes B2C more pervasive, at least initially for customers or for, for business entrepreneurs that want to start those. So there's a lot of reasons there's a lot of pull, but you're you're totally right. And there's the B2C, B2B side. There are just, you can find a small number of people and give them a huge value metric and they don't really blink an eye of spending hundreds of dollars on a software, but 
you talk to someone when they flip modes and they're in their home life and you're like, oh, would you pay $500 a month for this? It's like, ooh, like that's that's a lot of money. That like They start comparing it to other personal things like food budgets and car budgets and other things like that. Yeah, for sure. I love what you say about like, sometimes we got caught in trying to be cool. And there's also that thing of having to learn about a space, right? Because like you say, you were in the car dealership, you had to go deep, you have to learn about that space, learn the competition, because it's, it's not natural. Like, unless you are an industry expert, like you know that English very well, like, but then maybe you're not a tech person. So you have to go and you have to learn. And I think one thing that comes to mind too, like, it's why I'm building this business. Am I building this to have like the best job of my life and be financially uh, like stable, have money to travel and stuff? Or am I building this to be like the next Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, and I feel like most of us, we don't want to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And, and, like, and it would be a nice step stone still to build something that that's just like the best job you ever had, like that you love doing and, and that you make money with. You know, like a guy that I really like, uh, it's the Andrew from Mike Acquire. His first company was a B2B SaaS building uh, mobile apps for other people. Now he's he went and he raised money and he's trying to build this thing huge, but he sold that company. He's in a better place for financially with his family. So like, I feel like that's a better place for us for, as founders to start. So tell me about building version one of your product. Looks like you're a software engineer yourself. Uh, like how was building version one of your product? Uh, so yeah, I mean, version one, uh, well, I, I would say maybe first I'll start with like our MVP first. So I went very, very minimal on it. So it was, it was to the point where, yeah, I built other software before, you know, and, and what I did to test this because I didn't know how much this idea had legs. Like we all want it to have legs. We all talk about it with high confidence, try to interview people and try to get as much interest as possible. But you really ask it's like what what chances of success do you think this is because at that point in time i probably tried many other smaller ideas that i haven't even brought up today but so the the minimum i went to was i i essentially took other code i had right so for other little projects because you everyone has little pockets of code and scaffolding and all kinds of little things i had a html template that i put together um, and I think I bought it off of theme forest and, and put it together. And essentially that was the referral program interface. So what a person joining the referral program would see very simplistic. Um, and then I didn't even have a database to start with, even though I could have done one, <laughs> I actually just used, um, I ex uh, so what I did for an admin interface was I used, uh, I think it was Wufu at the time, you know, like a forms software. Um, asking people to, you know, put the name of your business, upload your logo, like the basic information that a business would need, you know, Hey, what are you, what are you offering on your referral program? So just the text, all of that. So basically here's your program designer. <laughs> and then what I did is I just, you know, took the CSV file and did a conversion and turned it into some resource files and just mapped those to like a URL so that everyone had a program without building an editor, without a database. I essentially used uh, the Wufu form as a, as a minimum viable like admin interface. Um, so that was our, I would say our very first version to get people using it, get businesses to kind of tinker with it. And this was well before we ever asked anyone to pay for it. This was like super early getting probably maybe 
10 or 20 of these people up and running so that they could send it to their customers and see if people were actually going to use it. Nice. Because like as, as being a developer, like so many times we, we as developers, we want to go and build this huge thing and we want to over-engineer. You build something super scrappy. Like, I just want to test that idea. And maybe it was that thing, like they have built so many things before. You're like, I'm going to just test this something, build it quick, uh, use Ufu as the back end. So those 20 people start using, they validate your idea and, that, and then you move into building version one. Like, how did that go? Like, what, what kind of feedback did you get that got you excited to keep going? Uh, I mean, the biggest feedback was probably the fact that it was being used, right? And so it wasn't tracking a whole lot. It was just like the attribution was pretty lame in terms of like actually tracking the results. But my first thing was like, okay, first one, is this interesting enough for someone to fill out a form? Two, are they actually going to go ahead and share it out with their customers to get them more referrals? So when I saw a bit of that, it also helped to narrow in on who was interested in this type of thing. So I did get to talk to people and figure out more about what what could be interesting for them. So that that is where I got into what I'll consider like really the version one <laughs> after that. So after my uh, MVP type of thing, uh, I, I was able to talk to those customers and really understand like, oh, well, how often are you going to want to change? Oh, you want to add an image here. So at that point, I think people were more invested in it and were willing to give feedback from, I would say, two or three steps in versus just, you know, hey, I have this idea, what do you want it to be, right? No one, someone will mouth off and guess, oh, I want an image, I want that. Oh, no, wait, no, I don't want that. Or once I see it, no, 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 not that, not this, you know, as you as a developer, you've probably seen that plenty of times on someone, what someone thinks it is in their head. And, and then once they see it on screen or on paper, then it's like, oh, wait, no, 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 that's not what I want, right? So I was able to get past those those earlier hurdles and get people to talk a little bit more. So that's what kind of became more of the impetus for the real first version, which I, then I did add a database, then I knew what, you know, do they want to actually add more images than just their logo? And so it kind of at least gave me an initial stronger set of requirements for what people were looking at would be interested in and also what could bring them value. And did you still build version one all by yourself or are you starting to build your team at this point? How, is, how are things going? Uh, this is all still me. So this was probably all within the first um, yeah, couple years of, of the idea. I think I originally registered the Referral Rock domain in, I think it was the end of 2013. So it's kind of one of these like ideas that's just sitting around and you kind of tinker with it. And I probably was working on other ideas at the time too. And just, it's one of the ones I just kept coming back to kind of like had, did that push to get some interest, get some people using it. And over the course of probably about a year before I, I had the, a version that I was basically willing to ask people to pay for. Uh, and I did get nudged because it was one of those things where you always don't think it's good enough because you're still in this very minimum phase. And a friend actually kind of challenged with me to me one weekend he's just like so you say like people are using this like why not charge them for it and i'm like well then and you know in your mind you're like well then they might go away and then i would have nothing and it's like no 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 like does do you provide value is kind of like put your put your money where your mouth is if it's really providing value they'll they'll pay something for it uh so i did take a quick weekend set up stripe and all of that and then it's like uh this was again this was the summer of 2015 and i 
went through and set it up. And actually within two days, I had a first paying customer. Um, so what I did do as a little hack to kind of not make me feel bad if those beta users went away, I didn't charge the beta users on day one. So I had the beta users and it was just the first, the next people that were trying to enroll for it. Uh, you know, there was like a, you have to pay for it. Um, and I got someone, someone random, you know, that I didn't know paid for it within the first two days of that. So the beta users were still there. And what I ended up doing is later that summer, I like notified them we're going to paid, gave them a discount coupon to say, Hey, you get basically 50% off for your lifetime. But, you know, so I kind of slow rolled it and I cherry picked which ones I sent that communication to over time as I felt more comfortable. And as I had, I didn't want to end up with like a bare cupboard. Like once I flipped that on, now I've got, I went from 20 beta users to two paid users. And now I'm only talking to two people. Right. So I, I kind of tried to hedge my bets a bit over that summer. That, that's smart. And, and that's also cool to think that it only took you two days to get another customer that was not already using the product. So like you were doing some marketing behind the scenes as you were building the product, right? So tell me like, where did the, the first customer come from? Because most people, they will get their first customer from their better users. That's not what you did and understand why you did that. You want to make sure you still have people giving you feedback, but like, where did that, that user come from? Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I was doing some, some, some uh, marketing aspects out there. So to, I, Along the way, I also did like a, a beta list launch. Like beta list is still out there. I don't think it's as big. I think now, you know, in the days now, a product hunt and things like that. Um, but but back when I launched this in that time frame, I launched on beta list and had a trickle of customers. I think uh, I was active on Twitter. I was probably in there looking for anyone mentioning the word, word referral marketing or refer a friend. And I was like tweeting at them and just doing a lot of, I would say, uh, yeah, non-scalable things that were just enough that things would trickle. Uh, people would come by, people would notice um, and that type of thing. So it was very slow. It wasn't like getting getting tons and tons of, uh, you know, signups a week or anything like that. Um, but it, it was a slow roll. Uh, and I would say when you mentioned the two-day thing, What's interesting, I w went back and thought about it. I'm like, I wonder how long I would have held on if that user didn't come in those first two days. Like, cause you're, once you hit that button and you're sitting there and you're just watching and you're waiting and that happened within two days for me, the next person that upgrade probably was another like two or three weeks. But what had been interesting is like, what if it went a month, right? What if it went two months? Like, would I, would I have thrown in the towel and just we wouldn't be recording this podcast today. I don't know. So that's cool. And I think business is a lot about that. There's a lot of luck involved too. And another insight here, it's like so many times it's not your first idea. I actually, myself, I wrote down, I tried to build nine SaaS products uh, and I took two to market. <laughs> so it is like what it is, right? You build, you're like, okay, this didn't work. Uh, it, it is a try and error thing. And I think that's what people have to think about too. And it takes time. So like now you're, you're let's keep going with the timeline. You're moving your beta users to paid users. You're starting to grow. How long did it take until you start making your first hire? Uh, and like, talk to me about building your team to like 20 people and creating like your core team. So like, how did that go? Sure. Um, so yeah, my, I would say probably speeding up a few months. It was, we spent, we, we ended up, 
making um, probably it was probably up to a, a few thousand dollars a month by that by that fall. So uh, I was it was still me, was, uh, and at that point in time, I started to think about like where I could use additional help because I was still doing the development. I was still doing any support and talking to customers. Um, and the biggest thing I thought I needed at that point in time was like helping with like knowledge-based documentation, maybe some blog posts and things like that. So I did hire someone part-time um, that fall to just help me with odds and ends that I knew I just didn't have direct time for and could always put off, but wasn't necessarily mission critical uh, types of things. You know, obviously at that point in time for me, hiring another developer would have been a huge chunk and and taken away from uh, also trying to just bring them up to speed and all of these other things. So at that point in time, it was still much faster for me to do the main things like working directly with the customers and the software and developing the software, but taking some of those other other areas like the blog posts and the knowledge base. Uh, and then eventually that person could help potentially on like chat support and things like that. So that's where I started in the fall. And as, as revenue increased, as I learned that I needed to do demos and learn how to do sales and, and start talking to people versus hoping they would just like upgrade and chat support, <laughs> uh, through the app. And, uh, it was interesting during that part of the, this, this time, because, it was probably only within that like six months before within launching the the first paid version that I did discover through talking to people more often uh, and getting more organic people just coming to the website and asking about the software. I realized it had a much higher value proposition than than I thought in terms of like what it was worth to people. So we ran into some also B2C businesses, but that were sp- very expensive. So like a car dealership, or uh, we had a water filtration company was like one of the first ones. And, and they were willing to pay a lot more because once I did the math, I'm like, Oh, yeah, if I send them one or two referrals, and they charge $10,000 for one of these like water filtration installations, like, that's a pretty good ROI, like it's a pretty good return on their investment. And they're willing to give like maybe a, a $200 gift card to the person that referred them, which for the consumer is a great deal as well. So um, it got me thinking about pricing and salespeople and those things. So as that grew, I sort of started, a, again, backfill positions I was doing. So I eventually had enough revenue and my time was being sucked up enough by half my days being spent on demos that I needed someone else to help me with demos. So I looked to hire a salesperson and kind of so on and so forth with that. It still took me a little while before I hired another developer, but I kind of modeled in my head as I would uh, nail the job and then I would scale it by finding other people and train them behind me. So it's still something I'm sort of doing to this day. I'm at this point, you know, 20 people in out of, I'm out of the code base. I'm out of the, uh, anything that I'm really truly an individual contributor on. And most of the stuff is more of leadership stuff. It is more strategy. It is more tactical types of things. But I kind of did that across all the different teams. And to date, we now have like a product team. We have a customer success and support team. We have a marketing team and we have a sales team. So those are the main areas. Uh, I still do finance and do like other other things that are not like a full-time job type of stuff. And some of those tasks are also distributed among other team players as well. That's a great strategy. Nail it and then hire. So like you learn the position, you learn what you need. And I would imagine that at that point, 
uh, you're not hiring senior people. You're hiring people that you can train because you know the job. Is that is that how you did? I think there's a there's a mix in there. So those first ones, like I didn't have time to manage, and I did what. It depends on the types of tasks. When I started to fledge out those new areas, like like the sales area or the customer success, I actually ended up that the most successful ones I got were were more of a finding a player coach type of person. So a person that had experience doing it. And since I had some experience, I was able to vet them and know if they knew what they were talking about. Um, but I, I kind of brought in like I would say mid-level people, the type of person that might have been on a team that still hadn't got their shot at managing or a person that's early on in management but still doesn't mind doing the individual contributor work. That's why I looked for. And those are the players that I look to both be the first salesperson, be the first customer success person, be the first like contributor, but also looking so that they are going to want to train someone else want to build a team around them. They knew that they've already mastered like the individual contributor type of role. So those were the ones that were most successful because it allowed me to not have to continue to, if you have like five people that you have to train, essentially you're just the, you're just the bottleneck for all of them and you're training all of them. And then it's across multiple disciplines and you're trying to context switch between marketing and development and product and sales and customer success. And it's without having someone that you can delegate training to and delegate some management to, um, it becomes a much harder hurdle to jump over to get to the next step. So I was kind of trying to look a little forward and do that. And it worked out pretty well for a couple of the roles. So, Got it. So the strategy wasn't to learn and train, it was to learn enough so I know if the person I'm going to hire is actually know what they're talking about. So I, I know like... The person is good and then hire someone that's kind of like up and coming person, mid-level, most senior that eventually is going to be a manager. But it's still the individual contributor level because in the early days, you need people to do their work, not to manage their work. So, yeah, so, so, so that's a good strategy. And that person's also going to make the playbook. They're the person that are going to make the playbook. Like, basically, I might be able to be like, hey, this is the thing. I'm doing the thing. And they're going to be able to take that uh, kind of... Uh, put it into an operation manual, learn it themselves, and then train other people, and then also expand on it and iterate and own it. Um, so yeah, def definitely on the learning the job so you know what you're talking about, because I think one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is they go, oh, and I, I made this too. My, my first sales hire was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, I just want to, like, someone else is an expert. I'm just going to bring someone else and, like, give them, toss them the ball and run. But Without knowing enough about those things, it's hard to know, you know, a marketer that says, I can do these 50 things, but it's like, can you really? And is that actually what we, what we need? So you do need some level to know, like, is this actually what I want, actually what I need for my business? Yeah, that makes sense. I, I really like the hiring strategy. And I think other SaaS founders, bootstrap founders can learn from you uh, and, and how you, how you done. So, um, so the developer was the first that you, you were by trade, so that's why it took longer to um, to hire someone for development. And how it was when you like brought other developers on board, being a developer yourself, it, it's, was it hard to let it go? Like, how did they treat your code? Like, and what stack you guys were using too, just out of curiosity. Sir, we're, we're a .NET uh, stack, and that's mostly because that all of my development was that early on, and, and 
So it was one of those ones where, again, like I mentioned about doing the MVP, I had, you know, code stuffed in corners that can do like, oh, here's how I do database connections. Here's how I do this. Here's my sort of my own like software development playbooks and templates and different things. So that's where we started. Uh, the first developer I hired, so I, I know I mentioned finding a, a, a leader. Um, he was probably more of a, you know, he was interested in leading, um, but was a was a reasonably seasoned software developer, and um, he's still with us today. He's he's awesome, and um, and and it it wasn't too challenging. I think I was able to just break out certain areas of the code, and I think with software it's a little easier because you can you see the check ins, you can easily like brief over the stuff. It's easy to you know there's some there's some natural forcing functions that are going to make sure it has. A level of quality like does it compile <laughs> so, uh, you, know, you know things like that does it you know uh does it does it work and all of a sudden is it you know so so there is you know some other roles are harder to tell like with a sales one you're kind of just like i don't know if it they sound like they're doing it but is it getting through to the customer i don't know you have to wait longer longer uh feedback cycles to really get an idea so because i'd been a developer before obviously finding developers interviewing developers all of that was was far easier than trying to figure out these newer roles. Um, but the, it did take a few years before, I think it was, so we had the first developer and it was probably at least two years after that before I hired a tech lead. And um, and that's when I really started getting away from the code base. So I was still like the pseudo tech lead for a while uh, with, the, with the first developer. I'm also doing product design and all of that. So um, that was probably one of the most impactful hires, which was probably about like three years in, was bringing in the tech lead to where I was really able to get out of the code base. And it was great because he was a a, a more senior, more seasoned developer than I was. Um, because, you know, with my other startup, I kind of went off into entrepreneurial land and was like less less in corporate dev and, and more standardized structures and whatnot. Like... Uh, I was not using Git. I was not using other stuff. Like I knew of it. I think I was using, what's the other, uh, yeah, Subversion. Yeah, I was using Tortoise and Subversion. So it's just like, oh no, that was, people were using that 10 years ago. So I was still, even my first versions of, of everything that we're still getting away from, I think is uh, is all in um, ASP.NET web forms. <laughs> so so again, the, the going with the code base that you know to get the stuff up, fast for for a for mvp for first versions for that stuff and now you know the team is fully moving you know we're more we moved to azure we did you know we're, we're getting some other little microservices types of things we're doing all other more modern things now but my first versions i mean my code's still there for a lot of the, a lot of the base a lot of the business logic things like that but you know you follow this strategy that I feel like every founder should find follow. When you hire people, you hire people that are better than you if you can afford them. And then they can come and they can do what you were doing better than you were doing. And it feels so good to learn and to like, okay, that's awesome. Uh, it, it sometimes is hard to do, uh, but that's like the ideal scenario where you as a founder can find someone that's better than you to do that job because we have so many hats, you know, like so when you do a marketing hire, hopefully they know more of marketing than you. When you do a, a tech lead that you were, you had the role, hopefully he's a better tech lead than you. And then eventually you say you have a product person now, hopefully he's a better product person than you because that's kind of like that specialization. And as a founders, we, 
we just are like the generalist. We we do okay in a bunch of stuff, <laughs> you know. So uh, uh, so like, what's the the first oh shit moment that comes to mind, like about your company, all the years they have been in business? I don't know on a on a on a oh shit moment of like a bad oh shit moment or like a good oh shit moment. You can choose. <laughs> I would say we'll we'll start with the good. I said with the good, it was one of these things where. You know, for a long time in those early days when you're starting to get revenue, you're kind of just like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like you're waiting for like, yeah, easy come, easy go. Like, when is this dream going to be over? Like, when is this, uh, you know, maybe it's imposter syndrome, maybe it's other just doubt or just like, hey, really understanding SaaS. And you're like, okay, all these people are paying, but only, you know, 60% of them are actually logging in every week. Is that a, is, are, am I really providing value? And and, you know, sometimes that goes up, sometimes that goes down. But what I, I think, I wouldn't say it was one moment, but it was like as the bricks were stacking and all of a sudden there was, there, there, I guess there was a certain point where you're like, all of a sudden I looked back and it was like, oh, I have a lot more confidence now. Like that doubt somehow disappeared. I don't know when exactly on the road it was. There was a point I did recognize it. And I think, and that's one of the biggest things I hear from other founders in those early on days is just like, this is working, but will it continue working? And should it work? I don't know. Like, I don't, you know, everyone has their own doubts. And it, that moment of realizing like those doubts were all gone. Um, and I think I would mostly attribute it to the reps, right? Because like over time you start to go, yeah, you're doing it for a month. Your confidence isn't high. You do it for two years. All of a sudden you're like, okay, yeah, those same users that are logging in, you know, 60% of the time, that's still the same, right? Like, so you're, by having those reps that the confidence in or doubts go away because you now have a longer track record of those things or, hey, I thought the shoe could drop, but it hasn't dropped in two years. It hasn't dropped in three years. It hasn't dropped in five years. Okay, maybe this is going to be okay, you know, type of thing. So that's the one I'd probably point to right now. Nice, yeah, for sure. Like, so basically having that confidence that build up confidence and then you realize, whoa, this is this is real. It, it's employing a bunch of people. It's people are using it, it's it's gonna be here to stay. So that was like kinda like your your oh shit moment. Great. So if you could go back in time and meet yourself from two thousand fifteen and, and talk with yourself about the business, what would you tell yourself? Hmm. I I, I wanna say after that first as our as we talked about that oh shit one, it'd be like it'll be okay, right? Like, here's where you'll be. Um, but I, I won't say that one because that one's kind of cheating at this point in time. But I would say what I would tell myself now is is also that I should realize that I am in a, like the business isn't as mature as I think it's going to be. So it's kind of on the flip side of that. It was like from a, I really thought I had a lot of things together uh, in terms of, like business metrics. And uh, I would say there was there was a, a period over the past year or so, I'm like, I think we need to be a lot more scrappier than than I realized. Like, I feel I feel like I started to go towards thinking too much about, um, I would say, like, we started to think about doing performance improvement plans, not in the bad ones, but just like, annual reviews and all of these like bigger company types of things. Cause I just felt like it was time. And the realization was more of like, 
that we should have more generalists doing multiple things are we started uh there was a point we started because we thought we were more mature started hiring more junior people and thinking we could train more people instead so there was definitely some things where i think i got i thought i was in a certain area and really there was a lot more meat down in like level two versus me trying to jump to level three or jump to level four if that makes sense mostly on a people management and that types of things i think I uh, I took a lot of cycles trying to be a more mature business than we actually needed to be at that point in time. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and I see that everywhere, you know, like uh, when you start learning how to code, when you are like, actually before you're a senior, when you're mid-level, you feel like you know a lot. You feel like you're an amazing developer. When you start being successful as an entrepreneur, you feel like, oh, I'm mature. Like now I, I can do all this big company stuff. And then actually when you get mature, you're like, oh yeah, I, I wasn't there yet. It, 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 it is just that when you start to have success, and things start going well, you usually think that you're better than you are. And then you look back and you're like, oh, I still had a lot to do. But it's just because you were being so successful. You never got that before, you know. So, but that's definitely a great advice to give yourself and to give people too. Like when your company start growing, like maybe you have to be like happy, but like maybe not as mature as you think you are, right? Yeah, and I think a big part that what what got weird there too is like the... It was not as much, it was like you you see other people, you see other leaders and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be this. I'm supposed to act like this. And those were some of the things where you didn't know because it was brand new territory. So, um, and that's what I'd say is like, slow down. Do you really need to move forward? Is that really, you know, necessary that you're doing, you know, uh, like, like leadership development for managers and things like that? Or should you just spend more time with them or like get more in the trenches with, with certain, certain projects. So it's like how to find that balance between maturing and building the business and also like kind of knowing what it really needs at that point in time. And I think there was a period where I got away from both. Yeah, so. that makes sense. I, I think it happens to all of us, <laughs> like having to find the, the balance. Uh, so what book do you recommend for every SaaS founder? Uh, the book I like to recommend lately um, that I've enjoyed is one of the ones I kind of keep coming back to is uh, it's called Extreme Revenue Growth, I believe. Uh, hold on. Let me. Yeah, it's called Extreme Revenue Growth. It's by Victor Chang. Um, it's it's actually an older book. I think it was first published in like 2007 and he might have had like a revised version in 2010. Um, but it's it's a very it's a great read because it, for me, it just keep centralizing around like a few main things it's like it's it's like how are you how is your i think one of their one lines is like you need to make a compelling credible promise to uh, about your product so it's like so it's sort of like how do you stand out how do you actually deliver what you're saying you're doing it and how how do you uh and how do you how do you yeah, keep it true throughout the whole process. So it kind of goes from a, both a marketing and a product standpoint. And like, I see it as this way that kind of goes through both gaps. And the other one it also emphasizes a lot is distribution channels, which I think is the first folly of most of us as, as, as founders is, you know, we want to build the product, we want to develop the product, but we'll like, oh yeah, I'll just hire someone to do marketing. <laughs> and they just feel like, uh, or hire someone to do sales. And they just feel like it's, it's uh, something that they can just, punt on later where, um, you know, it's that, that 
common trope, which is like, you know, second time or first time founders focus on product and second time founders focus on distribution. Uh, and that's definitely one of those, those truths. So I think that book kind of helps illustrate a lot of that, whether founders will listen or not, you know, it's a different story. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Could you share us a little bit about your own distribution strategy? Like what works for you guys and for your own product? For us, SEO has been probably the biggest one. Um, I've had a, my general thesis with like the business has been, we just want to be in that conversation. Cause like as, 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 as we started and talked about, like we think that there were, there was an underserved need in the referral marketing space. So I felt like if we were to at least get in front of the right people that know that this is a type of solution that's available, because at that point in time, everyone was just looking for uh, most of the referral program software out there was tied to e-commerce. So I, even one of our first taglines was like, you know, referral software for any business in parentheses, like not just e-commerce. So it's trying to call out, it was trying to say both everyone and really not not just e-commerce because that's what everyone says. <laughs> so that was like our first differentiation and, and product pieces that we talked about. So my whole strategy was to what I'll call be in the conversation. So it was making sure we were on all the listing pages, making sure that we had blog articles talking about those because I would say it's not necessarily a massive space, um, but it is a pretty uh, a decent space that is enough that there's a lot of queries for people are looking for software. So I felt like if we could at least get in the conversation, you know, we could show our differentiation within those. So SEO was a great channel for that. So we've been doing very well there for inbound. That's awesome. And, and you guys like are, are we in SEO or do you, do you have other channels in place? Uh, it's pretty much all SEO. I mean, I think any business, once you get to a certain like level or number of customers, you're going to have word of mouth, right? You're going to hopefully have organic word of mouth and hopefully maybe a referral program <laughs> to add on to it, um, and the backend. But, uh, that's, that's our primary channel. We've tinkered with a little bit of outbound emails and some different things, but you really have to look back and, and realize like, if you have a channel that's working, just to continue to double down on it. And I know people talk about platform risk and different things, and people are worried about Google, uh, you know, taking up all their search results. But in SaaS, I don't think that's much true. I know a lot of people will say, oh uh, yeah, Google's taking all these clicks away because they're putting in like the lyric quotes. Yeah, I was like, well, that was easy to get anyway. So if that's just as easy for you to scrape and build, you're not really building yourself a moat. Like, Google's not going to take my referral marketing tactics and tips. They might put a little some things in the little auto thing. and But the reality is someone that is really interested is still going to want to read the article, is still going to want to get to the details. So I don't see them as a big potential threat in the SEO thing for B2B. Um, maybe if you're just doing like programmatic stuff that is very easy to find the information and for them to you know put up front. So... I know that's kind of a contrary point versus what a lot of other marketers are saying these days. Yeah, but I think like as a founder, we have to think about what people are saying and what are they kind of like motivation. Because when you listen to marketers, they want to sell you all those tactics. But in my experience, you know, like there's always one channel, especially for bootstrap founders, that they pick and they dominate that channel. If you get big enough, you're going to have to open other channels. But like, it's just so hard to get good at three things. You know, pick one like that you know, that you have the know-how and that you can kind of like 
I I almost believe in a channel. Yeah, no, definitely. No. <laughs> you know, like what's the what's the channel that's going to work perfect for your product and go out in, uh, you know, so how does the future of referral rock looks like in your future? Kind of like what, what are, what's kind of like the plan where guys are going from here? Yeah. I mean, from a development standpoint and a product standpoint, it's interesting because if you probably asked me this question like four years ago, you know, probably in those early days, I, I think I've even said, Oh yeah, I feel like we'd be feature complete in like a year or two, right? It's like you kind of have the laundry list of all the features and all the things. Um, but now I was like, you know, even if you were just like to look in my Asana board and think about what some of the things we have planned and whatnot, I'd be like, yeah, this is it's probably a 10-year roadmap in here. <laughs> so so there's a lot that that we want to do. I think uh, I view it in two two steps. One is can we continue to further referral marketing and make it just show more data, show more, uh, actually what's going on in with referrals and word of mouth. How do, how do people refer? Why do they refer? How do we give different incentives that are other than just cash? I think there's a whole litany of areas that I want to explore in there. Um, so I do think there's more kind of in our niche. Um, but I also think there's a broader conversation to happen that, that, whether I can make that happen or maybe it requires other other things. But there's other forcing functions in that, like social media and ad, ad effectiveness, all of those other things, which I think could point to what we're doing uh, for with referral marketing as a more sustainable way to have, you know, s- some steady growth channels. So I think there's a bigger conversation to have there. And I also think there's like narrowing and sharpening what we are already known to do. So um, both of those fronts are areas that I'm looking at um, that, that I think we'll, we'll see, you know, maybe I'll come back on in a couple of years and some of these stories might've played out, or maybe we're still here and just doing more of the same thing. So. I like to say software is never done. Like sometimes people me, when is it going to be done? And I'm like, never. Like, do you want to ask when is going to be making money? We can discuss that. <laughs> done. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, so, and you actually have your own podcast where you're sharing the journey, right? As, as you're building your product. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and where people can kind of like keep following your journey. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, if you do want to follow, I'm pro- I'm pretty active on Twitter. So my handle is JLogic on Twitter. Um, I uh, I do have a, a podcast that is kind of a founder one. I'll be honest, I don't talk as much about my journey on there. I kind of I'm talking with another SaaS founder. We're talking every other week, and mostly I've been working with him on trying to help him get more off the ground because he's in an earlier stage than me. So, but it's fun conversation week to week where we're trying to figure out stuff and do talk about different SaaS topics at hand. Um, I am, however, also launching another one. So this one is more of a, I think you asked at the beginning, you know, we were talking about podcasting before the, before the, we started recording. Um, but I am starting another one called uh, marketing retro. So uh, which is more of a conversations about marketing conversations about growth, but also across for founders, for, you know, bigger companies, for marketers in different spaces. Obviously, with our software being in the referral marketing space, I spend a lot of my time in, in marketing and thinking about things in the marketing area. That's awesome. Okay, Josh, thanks for coming. Thanks for sharing your origin story in this show. And yeah, we're going to keep watching you grow. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks a lot for inviting me. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. 
To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.